Welcome to Teaching Python. This is episode 11, Signs of True Learning. My name is Sean Tiber. And I'm Kelly Paredes. Welcome to another week of our discussions uh, of exploring computer science, learning, teaching, ways to help our students become better coders and better critical thinkers. So Kelly, this week we're going to cover some of the signs of true learning that we see. What's been a big win for you in your teaching this week or inside or outside of the classroom? So I think I'm going to go with the theme of our episode, the, the looking for learning. This week, one of the big wins is when we did our genetics activity, just looking at the kids' understanding from the point at the beginning of the lesson, when I was asking them questions and they could regurgitate what they had learned really well. They knew the definitions in science. But afterwards, when we started exploring the data, I think you could really tell that they understood why science topics in the book were happening in our activity. So it was really cool. And we'll talk later maybe about what we did with our little genetics project. And yeah, for you? I have to agree. It was really this genetics unit that we did with our sixth grade science students. This was something that you and I have been working on for a very long time. And what was really great about this was that we were seeing the students really respond to it well. All of the, the things that we had hoped for in terms of their level of engagement, their ability to acquire the, their understanding of genetics and take it from being something that was in a basic singular fashion up to a larger scale big data approach or a population analysis all happened over the last two days. It was pretty amazing to see how well the students responded to it and their feedback at the end was really pretty amazing to hear that they were taking away a lot of the things that we had designed for with our lesson that we built. This is a fun topic for me. We're really diving into what is learning. What is learning in the classroom? What is learning in computer science? Uh, as a experienced teacher, a teacher has been teaching, I won't say how long, but for a while, it's a fun topic to know that you're doing a good job or a great job when you can identify the learning points in a classroom. So here's a top quiz. How do you define learning for you? So for me, I think there's a big difference, and I think this is pretty clear to anybody who's taught for a while, but there's a big difference between learning and memorizing. So learning means that I have acquired new information. I've integrated that knowledge or that information into my understanding of the world around me and that I'm able to reapply that knowledge to new problems and sometimes that process requires me to you know throw out old outdated information so it's constantly updating your mental model of how the world works when I see students memorizing information or they're just memorizing to regurgitate that mental model stays exactly the same like there's no real change to it or or anything they're not updating their own framework for understanding the world. And that, I think that works the same whether it's acquiring content or whether it's developing a new skill. It's, it's that idea of change and metamorphosis in my mental model for the world that really defines learning for me. Yeah, and that's interesting because the, the teaching is this whole giving of information, the giving of knowledge. We like to assume that when we teach someone that they are receiving and digesting that information. And that, that's a big difference of when we go and seek out whether a child's learning or not. So when we're giving the information and the knowledge to that learner, 
we need to figure out how is that learner processing it? How is that learner taking in this new information, taking in these new skills, and how are they making connections? If they're not making connections to what you're teaching, and if they're not able to to explore that topic further, then are they really learning? And that goes into your whole your whole theory with regurgitation versus actually learning. And that's such a fun topic. One of the things that I didn't know before I became a teacher was how much of my role as the teacher, as the guide for students as they're learning, is observing the students. You know, to really pay attention to the details of how they're learning things and what are the the indications that they're actually learning something. I'm still learning how to do that, right? That's still something that's new to me, but what I've found is that as I get better at this, as I become more proficient observing the students and seeing how they're responding to the material, I'm able to modulate my approach in a way that starts to evoke more of that true learning where I can see them really leaning forward and engaging. And it's everything from body posture to facial expression to the involuntary noises that they make as they're learning something, the nonverbals to the way that they answer questions, the way that they respond to work, the way that they think through problems and solutions. Those all can be points where you can see and evaluate, is there true learning happening at this moment? And then the final thing to add on to your list is, are they asking the questions to carry on that knowledge? And I think that's where you can identify where learning is. For me, when I talk about learning, when I think about learning, I like to always refer to math. I have a long history in International Baccalaureate program, the middle years program, they call it the MYP. And I used to work a lot with the teachers within their curriculum. And one of the criteria, one of the objectives that I love to work with is with the math program. And this kind of goes hand in hand with computer science. In the math program of MYP math, one of their learning objectives is that knowledge and understanding. One of the things that they always had to do on a test is they would give basic questions of topics that they've covered in class, but then they would give a situation when it's unfamiliar. And that was a key factor in understanding and pinpointing whether the student understood the topic or whether they learned the topic. And it was always a fun thing. And I like to think that in computer science, we do that a lot. We, we know that the kids have a point where they understand Python, where they understand what we do and why we do it. But when is the point when they can take that unfamiliar situation, that unknown you know, you know, blank screen or that problem that they have, and when can they then derive their own problem? And they learn Python. That's when they really learn Python. And I think it's such a fun topic to talk about, that process of learning. The other thing that I've seen, too, or the big moment that gives me, or the, the moment that occurs when I see that tipping point is when the student can start to acquire information autonomously, that they can start to add to their own body of knowledge without having to be guided as closely or directed, that they're able to research on their own, they're able to identify the problems that they're trying to solve or the potential solutions for that. And that's not always something that happens easily and it takes time, sometimes even just to build up the vocabulary to know how to ask the question in the first place. For a teacher, one of the things that we really need to be aware of and constantly reminding ourselves as we grow through 
learning how to teach computer science, learning how to teach Python, or learning how to integrate computer science in other classrooms is to switch from that sage on the stage, that giver of regurgitation, you know, those facts, and become a learning-focused classroom. And that's some things that you build up over time of how do I switch and look for those things and build a, build a classroom that's safe for learning to actually happen. It's interesting if you look at the outcome, right? If you fast forward 15 years beyond middle school to where students are now adults and they have to acquire knowledge and, and update their, their understanding of the world around them, but it becomes self-motivated that they have they either are learning something as they need it for their job or for their life or their their hobbies even how do they get to that point how do they acquire the skills that they need to learn and and be able to learn themselves in a i I hate to overuse the word self-starter fashion right but where they are able to identify what they need to know they can develop a plan for for learning that they can implement that plan or execute it. They can go learn the things and then at the end assess whether there's anything more that they need to learn. And so as we start to think about these learning spaces, we're creating them as these prototypes of that environment for them as adults that they'll need to be able to identify those learning needs, those learning objectives, and be able to fulfill it on their own with help from us. And it's like that deeper understanding of content that whatever it may be, whether that be the skill or in a a specific area, that they have that deeper understanding of content. It's kind of like what we did today with this genetics unit. We walked into the class and we we set the stage and we were talking about genotype and phenotype and the kids could tell us homozygous recessive and heterozygous and homozygous dominant they could tell us how much, you know, what's the percentage of a, of a single Punnett square between two heterozygote gametes, which now Sean is an expert on. And they, they had an understanding of the content. But within our code, within our simulation, within our, our project that we did with the microbits, they got a deeper understanding of the content. Those signs, that, that learning focus, we were focused on teaching, first off, pedigree, and then second off, mass reproduction within generations and then thirdly we wanted to look at genetic drift and because we were focused on a specific content a specific skill we were able to have that deeper understanding for them one of the things that we started to see today too was this concept of momentum that there's a motivation for learning from learning what i just did so when the students are learning about say how to, how to scale up from a classroom set of organisms running on the microbits up to a population of thousands, they start to see some new insights. They get some new, they can make new inferences from the data. And what we started to see was that they got excited by that because they could get that immediate feedback on were my inferences correct? How does this scale up? How do I, how can I apply the knowledge that I just acquired to understand the data that I have in a better way? And that helps me become more excited about learning the next thing. And it spurs new questions that I want to ask and understand. And so that motivation for learning comes from learning things in a way that is engaging and interesting and exciting to me. And then what you start to see over time, and I start to see it even over nine weeks, if you can create that motivation early on, when students come into your classroom later on, 
they are predisposed for learning. They, they acquire that disposition to learn more things. They come into the space thinking, okay, I'm going to learn something today. They may not know exactly what that is, or maybe they do know exactly what it is. I want to learn X today. Like, I'm going to go do that one thing because I really want to figure it out. But over time, it goes from being just motivation to being a habit, right? That you have a habit for learning. What's one of the ways that you see that playing out in the classroom, a way that, that students exhibit that kind of behavior where they have a level of maybe competency in learning when they are doing what? Like, what do, what do you see that as? I think you see that as one of the ways is that explaining things to others. We saw that today, and we see it, well, we see it a lot in computer science. When a kid or a student gets a topic, we tend to teach them as the teacher assistants. A lot of teachers use this method. It's something very common, you know, go help so-and-so, be that partner that's going to bring them along. But what we did today in the genetics activity, I'm not sure if you notice that we, you assign a child to answer the question, but you make sure that everyone else is ready to answer that question. And then the person who is focused on answering it feels less pressure because everyone else is there and then you bring in the table to discuss and that that ability to explain things to others helps solidify that topic solidify that learning and when you start seeing kids helping other kids learn a topic then you know something good is going on I like that approach today and we haven't used it as much as I, I would like to in computer science but one of the things I really like about that approach is that Anyone who's ever been in a meeting that has dragged on for hours and hours knows that if you have to persuade other people in a group to go along with your viewpoint, you better really understand your viewpoint well. Otherwise, it's not going to happen. So to put them in groups and have them seek consensus among that group forces each of those people to really make sure that they understand the concept or understand what they're arguing for or, per or persuading the group to adopt in order to be successful. And so there's a that personal investment in this is my idea and I am now selling my idea to the others to make sure that they buy in. Another thing I like about this sort of learning focused classroom approach is we take off that pressure because it's not just about them memorizing and checking to see if they've memorized it. We really want them to learn it. So at all costs, we're going to stop, we're going to go back, and we're going to double check, and we're going to use all the tricks of the trade that we have in our in our little teacher you know backpack, and we're going to make sure that it's a comfort area. It's an area where there's no panic. If you don't get it, we're going to make sure you get it, and if we have to sit down and explain it one other time, it's going to happen. Right. And it's it's some people recur it as call it as the learning zone, or the zone of learning. So it, it's just that learning-focused classroom that our outcome is not about you just memorizing the information. We really want you to get it. We really want you to be able to apply it in, in a different situation. And I think that is one of a, the most critical things. The concept is slow down to speed up. Exactly. It's better to slow down and understand the concept really well and thoroughly so that you can build off of that and accelerate later. I think one of the symptoms of a rushed approach is memorization. When you see students memorizing, it's usually because they have a test tomorrow and they're just trying to cram in as much information as they can into their brain. And I remind students that come into my classroom during whether it's advisory time or in between classes, if I see them cramming for a test, I remind them that that level of memorization doesn't actually improve their performance on the test. Yeah, and that just takes away from what we, we refer to as that disposition for learning, that 
love of learning, the you know lifelong learner that we all like to claim in our mission statement, if we don't take them to a point where it's, I want to learn, I feel like I can always get better, I can always learn new things, you know, like me taking in coding and you taking in teaching, we have that disposition for learning. We're constantly learning new things. We're learning machine learning. We're learning pandas. We're learning, what is it, sunbeams? What's that new data? Seaborn. Seaborn. We constantly have a disposition for learning because we, we want to. We're learning focused. I also wonder a little bit about the psychology behind that and the brain chemistry. I'm almost positive that I get a rush of dopamine every time I learn something new or I press the button and the code works with something that I haven't tried before and I get a new chart or a new graph or something cool happens. You know, that brain chemistry is something that we, the people who have that disposition for learning recognize as something that's valuable to them. And can you imagine a class of 20 kids with having that disposition, that learning-focused classroom where all 20 of your students are getting a rush of excitement because they've figured out how to do a for loop? Yeah. How crazy would yeah, that be? Yeah, I mean, it's kind of like <laughs> as one of the early episodes that we recorded was all about finding flow in the classroom. Mm-hmm. Flow is a really good sign that true learning is happening because students aren't distracted. They're not being pulled away. There's nothing better that they have to do at that moment than learn something. They're, yeah. they're dug in. And I think when the skills and the abilities, those things, those two things come together to help identify problems or to solve problems, that helps to get that flow, get that disposition for learning. And again, just reinforcing that if I learn this, if I really learn how to make a, a dictionary or a list, and then I can put it into another project or another program. It's going to help that teacher really identify that learning skill. So what are some of the questions that you ask students to help them identify when when they're learning or help you identify when they're learning? Well, this goes back into our topic about meta, metacognition we had a couple episodes ago. It's It's all identifying learning. We tend to take things for granted, I think, as learners, whether you're old or young, new to the topic or a veteran of a topic, we need to stop and have that reflection, that identifying of that learning point. So one of the things I always like to ask is, do you know why we're learning this? And if a student cannot answer, why am I learning this? And it's going to be really difficult for that student to make a connection to something external outside of the classroom. Today, when we were talking about genetic drift, I think we might have forgotten to say it in a couple of classrooms, but why are we learning about genetic drift? And it's pretty interesting. We talk about all the animals or the endangered species because of something that's happened in genetics, and it's, it's quite interesting. From my marketing days when I was working on promoting brands and making value propositions and things like that, you're constantly making a value proposition to your students. And the acronym that I always love to go back to is who guess, right? W-H-O-G-A-S means who gives a shit. (laughs) So who cares? Why are we learning this? Why does it matter? What's in it for me? Why should you care about learning this thing? If you put yourself in the shoes of your average middle school student or high school student or college student, there are things that they have to learn. They don't necessarily know why they have to learn it, but it's usually a very mundane, practical reason. I have to pass this class in order to get this degree. It's a requirement. Or I have to take this class because that's what they told me I have to take. Contrast that with adult learners, with people who are back in school because they want to get a degree to do something or they want to learn a skill or learn a trade. They know absolutely why they're there and why they care about learning that. 
maybe not with every class, right? Maybe it's still that like corporate finance or accounting class or something like that that they have to take. But for the most part, they can tie their learning objectives in this class to a broader objective that they're interested in. That kind of gets us to this other concept, which is being able to make connections. So being able to make connections is one of the true signs of learning that I look for also. So if I ask the question, hey, we just did this, did a for loop with a, you know, with a finite range using the range function, but now we've translated that to lists, how does that connect? How does that for loop with iterating over every item in a list or every item in an iterable, how does that tie back to other concepts that you've learned? That gets them to start connecting to the concept or the idea that maybe the range function, and like instead of just being this thing that they use, like, well, maybe that's iterable also, right? Maybe it's like just really just a list of numbers. And if I can think of it that way, now I've updated my mental model of how a range function works. Yeah, and that goes into how you say, how is this helpful? And I think you, you discussed that with the Python turtle of typing out the code to make a square. And you were saying, well, how is this helpful with the loop? And how is this helpful if we iterate a certain way? That's another great question to identify if they can understand why and how it's helpful and how it's connected to something else. Any type of transference of knowledge, any type of transference of skills into another connection, external either familiar or unfamiliar, is going to show that learning. Finally, where do I see this? So once I've updated my mental model, where do I see this around me in the world? So that's one of the reasons why we do these serious play days in our classroom. Yeah, we're playing with code. We're playing with robots. We're playing VR. We're playing Oregon Trail, for that matter. How do I start to see the concepts that I just learned in the past week manifest themselves in these things that we're playing with? And once you start to see them, then you start to see them everywhere. But it really gets back to that fundamental assumption that I make, which is I'm helping students update their mental framework, update their mental model of how the world works. And once they update that model, then they start to see those concepts and other things around them. And that is the way that I know that they're seeing learning because they start to see those concepts coming out and they can articulate, oh, I see that when I'm playing Oregon Trail and every day passes, that's a loop that I'm looping through every step every day along the trail to to Oregon. So and so on top of questions, just like questions to ask kids, you know, there's some there's a lot of tips that we can provide, a, a lot of areas that we a lot of things that we do in the classroom in order to make sure that your classroom is an area or a learning environment. So name one thing that you've noticed or you like about the classroom that we have, Sean, that shows it's a learning environment. There's a lot of stimulation in our classroom. There's a lot of things here that are begging to be explored. So we have whiteboard tables where people can sketch out ideas. And so there's like there's plenty of blank space for them to be able to explore their ideas and understand them. We have the VR system in the classroom where they can explore what the capabilities of VR. We have 3D printers here where you can make things. We have robots and toys and games and things like that. It's a fun classroom, but the true purpose of having all of this stuff here, the things that we've collected and added to our classroom, is to stimulate those connections and get students to ask the question, what is this thing? How does it work? And you know, what do I use it for? We like to look for ways for um, to capture those learning moments. I think I tweeted out that one time with our little our new little project area. It's just silly little shelves, you know, three little shelves that look like a bunch of garbage on top of them with our paper, cardboard, and, you know, plastic cups and a couple of somewhat nice 3D printed pieces. 
but really it's it's just that area to show where learning happened and to show that yes it was a funny looking prototype but look it really works and look how how great that is so the other thing that i want to mention though that i think that is really important is you have to be aware of how learning happens in your classroom how learning happens with you as a as a teacher but then also how it happens more broadly at your school or your community. So make sure that you're creating the environment that is still stretching for your students, that helps them grow and learn and everything, but it's appropriate to them, that it makes sense based on where they're coming from. So, you know, we have a, a classroom that's designed for middle school. This classroom would not work as well for adult learners. Maybe it would. I'm not I mean, sure. And it works well for me. I don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> I think that's one of the benefits. Again, from being around teaching and have taught for a few years, it's been really great for me because as an integration, a tech integration specialist, I get to go into all the classrooms. And you're starting to see that now, mm -hmm. too, where you get to see what learning looks like in different classrooms. So you make a valid point that you have to set your learning environment for your curriculum, for your personality, but not necessarily your personality, I guess, but the personality of your kids, your students learning that topic. Our classroom looks different then maybe, I don't know, maybe a JavaScript classroom might look different, not that we're particularly talking about those JavaScript. those differences might be fairly subtle. I don't know, <laughs> maybe not, because JavaScript could be like more VR, maybe, I don't know, maybe not. So I'm, I'm reaching here. But I think it's, it's a very valid point to just say that the learning environment needs to adapt right. to the needs of the learners. Our learning environment has changed nearly every day here. So, I mean, I think we keep evolving it, keep iterating it, trying to make it better. One of the other things, and I, I need to put a one of the plugs in of something that I have a passion for, is visible thinking. Visible thinking is was a standard that came out with ISTE. How do we make, how do we learn in a visual world? How do we take in information? And making things visible is another way to be able to, to reinforce learning. And so there's this thinking routines. There's a lot of things that you can do when you're making learning visible, setting up the routines like we do in the classroom, developing the thinking culture. I like to do this a lot where I tell them they cannot say I'm so confused because I'm so confused. It does not tell me anything. If we get locked into that routine of just saying, I'm so confused, automatically this mindset changes. But if they can pinpoint the point at which they are confused, then we can help reinforce that they weren't confused about everything. They were just confused about that topic at hand. So little things like that. Yeah, it's kind of like debugging the thought process. One of the things that I am training my students to do through each wheel or each quarter of computer science is to be more specific and be more descriptive about what's actually happening, whether it's in their code or in their head. To say, I'm so confused, is the equivalent of saying, well, it doesn't work. It's that process of peeling back and diagnosing what's the issue, what's the problem that's causing that student to be confused and to show them that there's part of it that we need to resolve for them. They're part of their mental model needs updating. And how can we help them do that quickly so that the rest of the pieces can all fall into place? One of the last bits kind of comes in a, a three-part series it goes on the tie on the on the topic of reflection and you do this really well of capturing those learning moments you do it in flipgrid and what's nice about flipgrid is you take take the video footage and they have to explain their learning moments and that part of reflecting on the learning sharing the learning 
or I should say reflect on a learning, capturing the learning and, and reflecting or sharing the learning is this learning process. This learning process that makes it real, makes it an iteration, makes it something that we deem really important. And I, I think whenever you can add that into your classroom, especially when talking about a new language or a new topic or a new concept, the, the stronger that connection with the topic it's going to have. Yeah, and we did that today with our genetics project. The, end, the last five minutes of every class was, hey, we need your feedback. We need to know what worked well, what didn't, what was your favorite moment from this, what part didn't work as well and you want to see us improve. And so that even just that few minutes of reflection on what did I actually learn today, how am I going to use that, what worked well, what didn't work well, can be tremendously valuable for both the learner and the teacher to understand how to improve upon that for next time. Yeah, and I just want to put out a couple of resources real quick. Even though we are not a international baccalaureate school, that is, I taught 15 years in the, the MYP program. If you look at the IBO website and look at their objectives, I think even though it's not math, it's not science or, or design thinking, you can use a lot of their objectives to help guide your teaching and therefore focus on the learning within within teaching Python. And the other one I like to always uh, go back to is visiblethinkingpz.org. And that goes into how do you set up thinking routines and just really get a good understanding of how you can have a school-wide culture of thinking. Nice. Well, I think that's going to do it for us because one of us has to get to Carline. <laughs> uh, our school day is wrapping up. And we wanted to thank everyone again for listening. If you have any thoughts, ideas, signs that you've seen that have been just really helpful for recognizing learning when and where it occurs, please feel free to share it with us. You can always share it with us through our website at www.teachingpython.fm or on Twitter at teachingpython. I just want to reiterate, it's been amazing reaching and developing our personal learning network, our PLN, you know, another acronym for teaching. And it's it's been just a, a great time talking to people and getting to learn about what they do with Python. Again, the topic of being a learner and always learning and becoming a lifelong learner is really important to us. So please continue to share your thoughts and reach out to us. Right. Thanks very much. So once again, this is Sean. And this is Kelly. Signing off. 